what, what I'm trying to do with these blanks, and it may not be entirely clear, my son Abner, out of the mouth of babes, he, last week he said, Dad, your, your message was so much better than last week. It had a point. <laughs> and what he meant to say was the point was clearer, the logic was clearer, but I think he probably spoke better than he knew. Um, and the, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do with this and even putting these texts in here is, is God uses grammar to arrange things and these words since so that because help coordinate. And so what I'm trying to lay out is how I think the propositions and the clauses relate to each other, that the basis is given in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, which then gets to the what. Well, that's why he became flesh. Why did he become flesh? That he might purpose to, to how it lays out. And basically, Admiral was saying he thought that attempting to lay that out in an outline was clearer last week than the week before. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so that you guys can see in the text. Oh, yeah, that's how it lines up. That's, you know, it's not, it's not magic reading. It's just thinking through and arranging things and, and figuring things out. So, okay. Other blanks, Lee. Anything else or is that it? Dave's missing the blank. What you got, Dave? Last one. The last one is suffering give aid basis his suffering as man enables him to give help so okay i'll open it up for any questions if you guys don't have questions i got more places we can go we got a lot more we can say about the humanity of jesus but questions thoughts zeb so um, we uh, we recently uh, kind of figured out that um, a good portion of Mary's family is involved in a church that we knew was uh, off off kilter, to say it mildly. Uh, turns out it is um, significantly more distinctly uh, heretical when it comes to the Trinity. Uh, so we were having some uh, conversations on that and just trying to get clarification. And one of the difficult parts in talking through the Trinity is the distinction between being and person, um, which is, I was, the, it seems to me like, and I'll defer to you on whether this is, uh, <laughs> whether this is orthodox or not, it seems to me as though essence might be a better terminology than being simply in that being carry is frequently used in our vernacular as basically interchangeable with person. Okay. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm, it seems as though most people when they use the term being are using it as another, like functionally interchangeably with, Hmm. with person outside of very nuanced theological discussions. So is there a, could you, um, give a clearer distinction between those two concepts than I did or um, or would you say that essence is an adequate or <laughs> proper uh, terminology to use? I'm Can, actually not going to go either way. I'm going to say like everything defining terms is what matters. We're using non-biblical categories right. which is fine. So even like last week when I said God is on God is a uh, God is uh, what was the word I said self self existent. That's our term. Now it's our term that, as best as I understand, covers a wholly biblical concept that God does not derive His life and is is 
power and his being from anything outside of himself. That certainly seems he was caught up in the I am who I am, I am that I am stuff. But but self-existent is our term, and it's possible we've got added freight in there that's not biblical. So I'm trying to distinguish between biblical terms and terms we use. And so the terms we use can be helpful, but they're all after the fact. They're all a posteriori, right? So they're observational. So because I've been reading up on EFS, um, eternal functional subordination, and everything's hinging around nature, essence, and person. And part of my thinking is these are our terms. Like, fair enough, but these are our terms. These are not biblical terms, which isn't to say we shouldn't use them. Back to your question, what non-biblical terms am I in favor of? I, the ones that communicate clearly. There's no right or wrong answer at that point, as long as the right answer is the one that communicates biblical truth clearly. And if terms are shifting like they do, um, then I'd adopt... I'm not, I would not call myself an expert on what the current freight of being is. I wouldn't think being means person. I would think being means something that exists. A rock is a being. A tree is a being. It, it is. It bees. It is, right? A person, a personal being, would be a person who is and is... That'd be my understanding of being, but if you're saying being means person, right? I think the the area in which we were in our discussion that we were having, yeah. uh, where it was, we were having, I was having a difficult time being clear. Is mm-hmm. any, and this is partly because it's we're talking about God, and God is unlike mm-hmm. anything else. Everything else that we discuss, a being is a singular, like. A rock might be being a rock, but it's a singular rock. It's not a cluster of rocks being a rock. Be in English can be a singular or plural verb. Will you be there? Will they be there? But nobody's... um, But it's not normally a group being. Church is. Uh, no, 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 I, no, I get how that can be problematic. I'm not sure what to say simply because we're off script. In regard, like, so, their say, so their essence is if God is, if God is bees, is, then he has to be singular? No. No. No, what, the, the, what's, what's so the... What's the... Their way... Yeah, this was, this was Mary and I discussing and, and okay. me trying to kind of help equip Mary in dealing with some family stuff. Okay. Um, specifically, their, their particular... I'm not even sure what their particular like blend of heresy is, but that it's full denial of it's a full denial of the Trinity with um, the, they deny, they only recognize the deity of the father. Uh, They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that the Holy spirit is personal at all. Uh, Okay. So, okay. Okay. So the Holy spirit is a force. Yes. Personal force. No. No? Very specifically the gift of tongues, nothing more. So say Zeb is a believer he does not have the Holy Spirit because he does not have the gift of tongues. You can be a believer without having the Holy Spirit. Wow. That's what they believe. That, I'm not That's saying that as a fact. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> like I mentioned the Trinity. My mom says, oh, you guys believe in the Trinity? We don't. And I was like, what? Sure. No, and, and so that's, and, and even like I said, going into what I was saying earlier, when I said I can only make three or four statements about the Trinity, and you came back, well, here's a lot of statements. You're unpacking what it means to be God. So when you're like, the Father is co-eternal, the Son is co-eternal, I'd put that under, yes, that's part of what it means to be God. But in simplified form, what we're saying is Jesus is God, the Father is God, Jesus is not the Father, there is one God. 
that's the cluster of core truth in Trinity that we're saying positively. And then there's, there are hundreds of things we can say further to add clarity. What I mean by saying Jesus is God, I mean he's eternal. I mean he's omniscient. I mean he knows all. I yeah. mean he's, yeah. Yeah, it's like chipping away, chipping away like rough edges to bring things into focus. Right. Chipping away the, right, right. the excess stone to make it a right, right, sculpture. Right, right. Um, no, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough because th- these are deep things, and yet we dare not on the one hand shrink back. If God's revealed it, he expects us to study it and try to approach and understand it. And yet we need to be careful about going beyond what's written. So these types of things, it's always tricky. We want to go as far as the text goes. We don't want to go much further than the text goes, if, if further at all. And we want to affirm what's affirmed. Like, so, so back to your initial thing, I think we want to be very careful um, identifying what truth is gospel critical um, you know, one of the exercises I do when I do Bible classes, Camp Appanoose, we did Tough Men here, other things, is have people come up with a list of the, uh, of the, what truths are such that if they're denied, you're, biblically we'd say you can't be saved. What, what truths are, are, are absolutely critical for salvation? Um, and that's a pretty small circle. But I put the deity and the humanity of Jesus in that circle. Because, and then you got to say why, on what basis. It's not because I think they're important. Because Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Because First John says, if you deny he came in the flesh, you're the spirit of the Antichrist. I wouldn't put inerrancy on that list. It, I think inerrancy very quickly gets problematic. But I look at C.S. Lewis and I'm like, you know, okay. Like, that's a big, it's problematic, C.S. But I can, I can hope and believe you're an untaught, uninformed sheep. But if you if you if you aren't knowing what you're saying, denying the deity or humanity of Christ, I think that's the basis we'd look at, say, Mormons or other right. cults. And, and, and it yeah. seems like there's yeah. there's a very small circle of like these are the things that you have to actively affirm. Yeah. But then there's a there's a circle outside of that. It seems like where like if you actively you might be on top, but if you actively deny yeah. this, like maybe somebody I like I could be I could be willing to acknowledge somebody's like can't clearly articulate the Trinity can sure. be saved. Sure. No question. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's like, Oh, you actively deny right, right. you, you know what the Trinity is and you say, no, right. well, that's like a, that's a whole different ball. Game. No, 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 no. I agree. I, I plenty of room for somebody's like, I don't know. Jesus is the son of God and he's man. I, I don't, I'm not sure I'll let up this together, but I believe it. Like, okay. But yeah. your point being to know what you're saying and deny it. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so sure, yeah, yeah. No, these, these things are these things are tough. I, I, I just want to be careful. There's a danger. I'll give you a, a word: reify, R-E-I-F-Y. And it's the word we use when we name an abstract abstract to make it concrete. And it's it's helpful to come up with terms in theology. It's helpful to come up with words to reify things like Trinity. Um, the danger to watch out for is just that in naming, there's a sense of empowering. So God brings the animals to Adam, and he names them. And um, the danger for us is when we name things that are wonderful and high and lifted up, just be cautious. We don't think we understand them better than we do. It's, it's, again, I love Lewis. To say that we know how birds fly south is by instinct. This is simply to say we don't know how they fly south. To name it is not to explain it. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to be on guard against with some of these things is, yeah, I believe in the Trinity, 
I don't understand the Trinity. You know what I mean? The Trinity is kind of like a circle of like positive statements and a whole bunch of not this statements. Um, and the danger can be becoming so familiar with the, the, the guild speak, the theological jargon, which is totally helpful amongst people who know what they're talking about. But it can also breed a certain complacence and a certain um, familiarity. That's all. So I'm just trying to be cautious with some of these things of like, okay. Um, that's, it's, I've been d- dipping my toe, because you're familiar with the whole eternal functional, okay. For those of you, the rest of you in the class, there's a discussion in the church about whether or not the, the statements Jesus makes in John 5 about how he can do nothing on his own authority, he um, only does what he sees the Father doing. Jesus' functional subordination, by which we're saying, in action and activity, he subordinates his will to the Father's. Is that a timeless characteristic of jesus or is that unique to the incarnation is that unique to his enfleshment and the the primary argument that i've seen against it being an eternal is a is a logical argument that says wills if jesus subordinates his will then jesus has a distinct will from the father wills are um eminent wills reference different natures different substances, and if Jesus has a different substance than the Father, then he's not God. I get the logical flow of the argument. I'm not entirely sure. Like, part of me wants to be like, and how do you know will is a function in nature? Who taught you that? Like, I get the logic behind it, but, but I'm a little cautious with being dogmatic on those points because... You, do you get what I'm saying with that? Like, that's partly why... I, I only get frustrated with some of the vehemence some of these people are, you know, dropping heresy bombs on this, you know, whereas... You know, guys like J.I. Packer, who've held to that, certainly don't believe in two essences and two different, like, like, anyway, sorry. We're not going to get into that. Sorry, it's, it's Zeb and I having a sidebar, but, okay, sorry. Questions after that long sidebar. We had one question already, one. Any other questions on anything we've covered this morning? Simeon. So this is on John 5. I was thinking about this the other week when you had preached on it. I hadn't heard the Sunday school, so I didn't get a question in then. Um, we totally covered it. <clears throat> yeah, probably. So I had read an article by Moeller probably uh-huh. like half a year ago-ish. Um, and I was a little confused by it, but yeah. it, he was arguing for being buried and not cremated because of the raising on the last day. We Could did you? talk about this last week. Ah, so I did miss it out. There's the short answer being we have no command. Some people thinking through it, trying to make the symbolism line up, have, have made some fair points. I get the logic of that. Um, I get why we face... Why I learned this just like two weeks ago. I learned this at Gary McVeigh's funeral, the funeral director. You face the East because the resurrection you're facing christ returning oh that's cool and now that i know that i'd probably bury me facing east too but like you're not wrong if you're buried facing west there's a lot of so as you think through what the symbolism and what the rationale is um i I get the argument there i just don't want to make laws where there aren't laws but no Mm. i'm I'm familiar with the arguments for burial and and all of that and they they make sense i get the thinking through of it at the same time you know i don't want to make i don't want to make a law where there is no law so, but no, we did check it out. We cool. did. We, okay. Oh, Jay, Lee. On, on on that about the East churches also faced East. Do they? Yeah, typically. And in, in fact, in, Lon- no, in London, do. there's a church. Look at that. 
Huh? We do. We totally yeah, we do. do. I the don't. Sanctuary. I know. But you do. <laughs> you did a little bit. This morning you did a little bit. This morning I did a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Um, okay. Well, the the thing I was thinking about is um, huh. talking about how that we can approach the throne of grace with uh, my my version says confidence, and you yeah. said boldness. Yeah. And I really struggle with that because I I know how unworthy I am, yeah. and and even applying Christ's blood, it's just like it's 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 almost like I'm saying, well, that's not enough, right. or something. You know what I mean? It's right. like I'm it's. Uh, are you getting what I'm saying? Totally. Just that boldness. We are we are hardwired for works. I know this, and I repeat this to myself, and I can't escape the fact that when I've been when I think I've been faithful, when I think I've been more diligent, when I think I've been a better servant, I feel more confident to come before the throne in prayer. I'm hardwired for a works relationship, um, which is one of the reasons why these passages to me are so are so helpful because. When do I most need grace and help? When I've totally blown it, right? Um, and what I'm tempted to do is like the dog hiding behind the sofa, peed on the floor, right? Um, and and so and and, and there's there's two ditches on every side of the road. That you could totally have this sort of nonchalance. I'm, and I've seen that before. Isn't it great? Jesus died. Whatever. I know I messed up, but hoo hoo, Jesus died. I'm great. Wonderful. Like no, the part of you that's trembling and the part of you that's that's. Uh, whoa, is right. That's right. The solution isn't some sort of nonchalance, you know, the high five Jesus um, approach. But the other approach isn't the shrinking back in dread, but coming before. Now, what happens right before that, go to Hebrews 4, is the complete, complete evisceration of self. I mean, come boldly that you, you might be exposed for who and what you are. Knowing that as you confess that, you will not be rejected but restored and healed, but you can't come boldly with any pretensions of faking it or, or flattering yourself. Because what comes right before that in Hebrews is that passage that you, know, you always hear in inerrancy conferences. I can still picture Steve Lawson just hammer preaching this. Um, but you, this is that passage, right, for uh, verse 11, Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's actually what comes before this passage in the scripture is a warning. Don't, don't fall up, don't come up short. Keep striving. Keep, keep, don't, don't rest on your laurels. Keep striving. Why? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom he must give an account. Now, that's what comes immediately before coming before the throne of grace for help. When you come before the throne of grace, that spotlight, that complete un... not clothing, but that complete total exposure without any pretensions, without any um, error... That can be frightening, too. I mean, there's a sense which only come before the throne if you're willing to see yourself for who and what you are. Now, know that when you see yourself for what you are, what you don't get is you disgusting thing, get out of here. You get healing and help. But there is a sense which don't come unless you're willing to be serious. What comes immediately before this is God's word will show you who and what you are and will, will define you for who and what you are. Then after that, now come knowing there's a high priest who isn't going to say, you disgust me, get out. But rather, it says, I, I've been there, I've suffered, I've been tempted, I'll give you help. 
So I, I think that the package deal of both is important. If we just have the one wing, you can have this sort of, Jesus is there, so yeah, like, be ready to be fully exposed and the knife to go in and pull everything apart and expose who and what you are. If you're ready for that, by all means, go. Uh, in the context of what you just said about the warning before it, yeah. it looks to me too like what he's saying there is trying to hide what do you think you're accomplishing. Right. Like, yeah. it, Come boldly because you're not fooling God by hiding. Right. Like right. He knew when he said come what you were bringing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which we feel like yeah. uh, he won't see me if I don't make any noise or whatever. And the warning before it is like, oh, no, it's as if you're the only person on the planet he's looking at. Like, he, he knows everything about what you're doing. You're completely naked. So if you'd like help, come forward. There's, there's no sense shying away. Well, yeah, I, I think the main... We tell ourselves we don't want to come because we don't feel worthy. I think Hebrews is suggesting we don't want to come because we don't really want to see ourselves as we are. I mean, I, I think practically, I want to flatter myself to some degree. I want to think I'm better off than I am. I want to think I'm a better person than I am, that it's not as bad as it is. And what we get is both. It's way worse than you think. And he forgives and invites and accepts you anyway. And that's the wonderful but the challenging thing of the gospel. Like, the part the culture it's tough for us is you're way worse than you think you are. Your small foibles are bigger than you think they are. Um, your, 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 uh, peccadillos to use a word are, are more significant than you think they are. But God's not saying that cause he wants to rub your face in it. He wants to heal and restore and redeem you. But, but, uh, yeah, no, no, you're not going to fool God. Yes. Pristina. Um, <clears throat> When I've always thought about come confident, I mean, just tell me if I'm wrong. I would think of come confident, your confidence in the Lord and Christ and not in yourself. So am I wrong for thinking that way or? I know you're totally right. What I'm saying is the confidence here is in our priest, the one who's there waiting for us. I'm, I'm confessing that my own humanity, my own flesh, I'm hardwired to feel more confident when I've had a good week. I'm hardwired. That's wrong. I've got to keep preaching this to myself because what happens is, regardless of knowing this, my experience is I screw up, I lose my temper, I screw up, and I, 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 I'm selfish and I don't serve my wife. And then I feel like, you know, and then I, then I feel like the dog be on the couch. And, and it clicked one day. I'm more in need of, look at the when to come, verse 16, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Surely, when I'm need restoration and when I'm weak and when I've sinned and when I've, when I've rebelled, I, I'm more in need of grace and mercy and help than when I'm walking strong and faithfully. So if anything, it's more talking to the, it's, if anything, that verse is saying specifically when I don't feel worthy to come, specifically when I'm tempted to hide behind the couch, come. And it's all because of not me, but who's in the room with me. Who the priest who's there before the throne of God, and pretty much all because you know, yeah, that's where else shall we go? You know, where that's where our confidence go? lies, yeah, in Him. Yeah. And when I'm at my worst, even though I may feel, and it's not about my feelings, mm-hmm. that and I am unworthy, but the confidence is, in my opinion, or well, I was taught, or is that I can go there regardless of myself 
in spite of myself because I know that God is going to, um, you know, be there yeah. for me. Amen. Amen. Hold on. I'm going to look up a passage in the Old Testament. Where is it? Um, yeah, Micah. Go to Micah 7. I love this. If you look up gutsy guilt, John Piper's got a, a helpful, I'll, I'll, I'll find something on it, but he, he introduced this to me. This is a very interesting way of dealing with sin. I love this. Micah chapter 7. But if you go to Desiring God and search gutsy guilt, um, I just got to find Micah now. Hold on. Jonah, there it is. Micah 7. Um, we're going to look at verse 8. Um, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. It's an amazing statement. I've sinned and God will discipline me, but he's going to ultimately redeem and restore me. So don't you rejoice over my enemy. That's, that's a guilt that has faith. It's an amazing statement. Let me read it again. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause. God's going to plead my cause. There's even Trinitarian overtones there. To who is God pleading my To whom is the Lord pleading my cause? To the Lord. <laughs> so, um, and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. And as believers, when we, when we sin, this is the confidence we should have. Oh, yeah, God, I mean, Hebrews 12 is clear. Every father disciplines his son whom he delights in. God disciplines us. But his discipline is not the precursors of hell. It's, it's to share in his holiness. It's, to, it's that we might be more like him. It's just actually a sign of acceptance and love. And so this person in Micah is saying, yeah, I've, I've sinned and I'm being disciplined by God, but I know ultimately God's disciplining me to plead my cause to bring me out to the light and restore me. So don't you laugh like I'm down for the count. I'm not. Um, that was a sports reference, right? Okay. Ish. Zeke. Sorry. Um, well, as long as we're talking about priests, I just want to throw this in. I've been reading back through Leviticus in the last few, uh, few days and, um, all the law, all the priestly ordinances, really kind of, I was just amazed when you just said that Jesus is the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. To be those two things. He's the third thing, too, is the altar the sacrifice the, is made on. It's, it's, it's amazing. It yeah. is absolutely amazing. It just, just what it took to be a priest, the variegated sins that they have to atone for, and that the priest has to, in Old Testament Israel, has to make himself clean first purified, dressed a certain way, has to make atonement for his own sins before he can make atonement for the sins of his people. And uh, even, even priests with certain physical deformments couldn't perform certain priestly functions because it, it, everything had to be just right with the priest before the priest could offer 
um, um, sacrifice for the people's sins and uh, for Jesus to come along and uh, be all those things together is amazing. And um, if we have reified the Trinity to some extent, just talking what Zeb was saying earlier, if Jesus is not both fully God and fully man, none of that works. Right. And, and, and if, the, if the Trinity is difficult, you can take a half a step back and just say that Jesus insists on both on his deity. And yeah. without those two things, so much of our understanding of all these things starts to fall apart. And as, as it relates to the cross, if Jesus isn't man, he can't be our substitute. If he's not God, he can't die for countless people. If he's just a man, at most he could stand in the place of one man. So you, you need the, to understand the atonement, you need the full deity, the full humanity of Jesus from both to be an adequate substitute and a sufficient substitute for, for God's people, for the, for, the, for the children given to him. Um, so yeah, you want, we're very practically, if he's not man, he can't die for me. And if he's not God, he can't die for more than me. You know, um, so, yeah. Okay. Yes. Connie. Uh, I was just thinking of this, uh, of uh, the com- uh, communion we just had and then how we all stop and search ourselves and our, the sin that's... Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, 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 that, and plus also in First John, uh, let's see, uh, if we, nine, I guess it is, One if nine. we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins yeah. and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, you'd be sentenced, maybe take a while before you pray next yeah. time, and there might be a lot of sin in between there, but maybe just continue to think that in your heart. Uh, and uh, talk to him, and uh, and let me take a word on that because I've I've talked to people who've tripped up on. I thought I'm forgiven, so am I getting forgiven? The the best analogy I can use is once and for all, at repentance and faith, when we're forgiven, the legal guilt and the legal penalty is paid. When you and I, as forgiven sons and daughters of God confess our sins to God, and as God forgives us in an ongoing sense, it is not the reapplication of legal guilt and the re-removal of legal guilt. Think of it like shifting to family court. My children can incur my displeasure, and they can, that's the whole argument of Hebrews 12, and they can invite my discipline. But at no point in that discipline are they being threatened with being cast out and being unsunned and undaughtered. We are in God's family, and our father, we, we wrong our father. So when I say, God, forgive me, I'm asking a father and not a judge to forgive me. I'm asking a father to restore a relationship. So First John talks about walking in the light, having fellowship with one another. Your and my sin as believers can negatively affect our fellowship with God. Our fellowship with God can be hindered because of our walking in darkness. And so when I say to God, I'm sorry, I've been walking in darkness for most of the day. Please forgive me. I'm not saying, please remove your wrath so that I don't go to hell. I'm saying, please restore the sweetness of your fellowship. And, and please, re- so it's almost like a relational forgiveness. It's like my kids, when they come and say to forgive me. Picture if I was also a judge in a court of law. When my kids come and ask forgiveness, they're not coming to a judge to ask for forgiveness. They're coming to a father. 
you and I deal with the judge once and for all when we come to faith, when we're forgiven, when we're justified. That, that doesn't get repeated. That is a once-for-all activity. You and I, as children to a father, regularly ask for forgiveness. I think that's what Jesus was getting to when he told Peter, uh, when Peter, he's going to wash their feet, and Peter initially, is classic Peter, no, Lord. And he's like, look, if I, don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, then wash my whole body. You know, he's like one extreme to the other. And Jesus says, no, you're already clean. You don't need a, you don't need a bath. You just need me to wash your feet. You and I, if we're in, if, if we're in Christ, if we've, if we've trusted and we are already clean, but we need feet washing. And that's kind of how I view the daily confession of sin um, is a regularly going to a father saying, I, I want my fellowship with you to be closer and, and sweeter and, and less hindered. Does that make sense? Yes, no, maybe. Okay. Okay. That's the best that's the best simple way I can put it together. So yes, we are to continue confessing our sins, but in doing that, what we're not I, I'm trying to avoid it's not as though and, and one of the things that we go to first John one nine. Let's, let's take a we got five minutes, take a look at it quick. Another precious, precious passage. Um, um I'll try to walk through it quickly, um, starting in verse 5. This is a message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, the rationale is this. If God is where there is no darkness and we're where there is darkness, guess who we're not near? God. He didn't move. I did. God has no darkness in him at all. If I'm walking in darkness, guess who I'm not side by side with? God. And so if I say I've got intimate fellowship with God while I'm walking in darkness, I'm a liar and the truth's not in me. Okay, so um, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, another ingredient is added, and not just my fellowship with God, but my fellowship with other believers is conditioned upon my walking in the light. You're in my, this is ultimately why church discipline leads to excommunication, because what we're saying ultimately is, persistent, unrepentant, stubborn walking in darkness compromises our fellowship. Our fellowship ultimately is predicated upon our mutual commitment to endeavor to walk in the light. Then there's another danger. If we say we have no sin, well, I I finally reached the state of holiness last week where I stopped sinning, praise God. No, there's been been groups, Wesleyan perfectionism, there's been groups that have tried to say that. Um, We deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So no, that's not the answer. Uh, so John is guarding against both an unrepentant walking in darkness and a denial that we sin. The reality is, as believers, we're trying to walk in the light, and we stumble in the darkness for a bit, and we get back in the light. And then that's where verse 9 shows up. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the mark of a believer is when God, by his Spirit, shows us our sin, we confess it to him. And, and as we do that, we can be confident he's cleansing us from all our sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So day by day, hour by hour, as we see sin, I'm sorry, and we confess it. That's what we're to do. Um, we're not getting saved every second. We're not, we're not having the guilt of hell and wrath removed every second. We are, to get back into the light, reestablishing our relationship and our fellowship with the Father and with one another. Um, so, okay. Two minutes. Anything really quick? Thank you, guys. Godspeed. God bless. Good day.